Hey guys, it's Tats here from Castagra, and welcome to the Specified Growth Podcast. Each week, I talk to leaders and experts about how to overcome adversity, grow massive organizations, and how to create meaningful change in the building materials and coatings industry. Today's guest is Kim Scott. She's the author of the best-selling book, Radical Candor. And she's also an advisor and CEO coach for Dropbox, Twitter, and other world-class tech companies. Kim, thanks for coming on the show. I am honored to be here. Thanks for having me. So for those that don't know, what is Radical Candor? <laughs> so radical candor just means caring personally and challenging directly at the same time. I think maybe another way to answer your question is what is radical candor not? Because very often people will say in the spirit of radical candor and then they'll <laughs> act like a jerk. So that is not radical candor. That's what I call obnoxious aggression. So obnoxious aggression is what happens when you remember to challenge, but you forget to show that you care. Now, there's other mistakes that happen. Very often, we neither care nor challenge, and that I call manipulative insincerity. And that, of course, is the worst place of all to be. But, and it's fun to tell stories about obnoxious aggression and manipulative insincerity. But the fact of the matter is, in my experience, the vast majority of people make the vast majority of mistakes when they do remember to show they care. And because they care about other people's feelings... Mm they fail to tell them something that they really need to know. And that I call ruinous empathy. So mm. that's what radical candor is and what it isn't. Mm. Yeah, I saw your updated version of your book. You went into great detail on what yes. it was and what it wasn't. <laughs> so and you were kind of, you're sort of regretting using the word radical, but then maybe it had a sort of, you had a point of using it that way. Yeah, I, I can't say I regret Radical Candor because yeah. the title really worked. It's catchy. The, the problem, I think, well, there's always a problem with any two words. It's a big idea, Radical Candor, and boiling it down to two words is, is dangerous. But I think that the, one of the other things I considered calling Radical Candor was Compassionate Candor. And the thing I like about Compassionate Candor is that it makes a nice sort of contrast to ruinous empathy. So ruinous empathy, very often when we feel total empathy with someone, like if you, if you take it very literally and if someone is drowning and you feel the same way they do, like you can't breathe, then it's much harder to help them. So empathy can create burnout, but when we show compassion for people, we feel with them instead of actually feeling the same thing they feel, then that can be more energizing, can help us move towards action. So that's what I like about compassionate candor. But the thing that I like about radical candor is that it is so rare, mm. radical. It's, and, and, it, but, and yet it's so, it doesn't seem like it ought to be rare. We know we're supposed to care personally about the people who we work closely with. <laughs> and we know we're supposed to challenge them directly. If, if we see them making a mistake, we know in theory, at least, that we're supposed to point it out to them so they can fix it. And yet we don't do this. And so that's why, that's why I like radical candor. Mm. So when did you figure out that this was really important? You know, I think, I think that this has been sort of a lifelong journey for me. Probably the first moment 
that I realized it was important. I, I, I can remember vividly my grandmother telling me as a small child, I don't, I don't remember what I had done wrong. I had done something wrong. Mm -hmm. And she had told me, I think I had told a lie. And, and she told me that it was wrong. And I was upset. I was very sad. And I ran off crying. And my grandmother came after me and she said to me, if you can listen to when you've done something wrong, to the people who love you, who tell you that you've done something wrong, you'll be a better person. It'll help you. I'm not trying to hurt you. I'm trying to help you. And so that really, that has always stuck with me. I remember thinking, you know, Granny's right about that. <laughs> and so that was probably the first moment. But, but when did I put it into place in, at work? I think there was, a, there was a moment when I was, I just started working at Google and I had to give a presentation to the founders and the CEO about how the AdSense business was doing. And I walked into the meeting and there was Sergey Brin in one corner of the room in a bright blue spandex unitard <laughs> and toe shoes on an elliptical trainer pedaling away. And there in the other corner of the room was Eric Schmidt, who was CEO at the time, sort of with his head so deep in his email, it was like his brain was plugged into the machine. Mm -hmm. And I felt a little bit nervous, like I think most people would in that situation. Yeah. How was I supposed to get their attention? Luckily for me, the business was on fire. And when I said how many new customers we had added, Eric almost fell off his chair. What did you say? This is incredible. So I'm thinking the meeting's going all right. In fact, I now believe I'm a genius. And <laughs> yeah, yeah. as I walked out the door, I walked past my boss, who, who was Cheryl Sandberg, and I'm expecting like a high five, a pat on the back. And instead, Cheryl says to me, why don't you walk back to my office with me? And I thought, wow, I have screwed something up, and I'm sure I'm about to hear about it. And Cheryl began the conversation by telling me about the things that had gone well in the meeting, not in the feedback sandwich. I think there's a less polite term for mm -hmm. that but not in the sort of kiss me, kick me, kiss me word, but, but really seeming to mean what she said. But of course, all I wanted to hear about was what I had done wrong. And eventually, Cheryl said to me, you said I'm a lot in there. Were you aware of it? And now I breathe a huge sigh of relief because if that was all I had done wrong, who really cared? I had a tiger by the tail. And I kind of made this brush off gesture with my hand. And I said, yeah, no, it's a verbal tick. It's no big deal, really. And then she said, I know this great speech coach. I bet Google would pay for it. Would you like an introduction? And once again, I made this brush off gesture with my hand mm -hmm. and I said, no, I'm busy. I don't, didn't you hear about all these new customers? I don't have time for a speech coach. And then Cheryl stopped and she looked me right in the eye and she said, I can see when you do that thing with your hand that I'm going to have to be a lot more direct with you. When you say um, every third word, it makes you sound stupid. <laughs> Now she's got my full attention. <laughs> and, and some people might say it was mean of Cheryl to say I sounded stupid. But in fact, it was the kindest thing she could have done for me at that moment in my career. Because if she hadn't said it to me just that way, I wouldn't have gone to see the speech coach. I wouldn't have learned that she was not exaggerating. I literally said every third word. And this was news to me because I had been giving presentations for my whole career. I had raised millions of dollars for two startups giving presentations. I thought I was very good at it. And so this really got me to thinking, what was it about Cheryl that made it so seemingly easy for her to tell me this? But almost more interestingly, 
why had no one else told me? It was almost like I had been going through my whole career mm-hmm. with a giant hunk of spinach between my teeth <laughs> and nobody had told me it was there. And that was what really got me to thinking about sort of feedback in a structured way. And, and I realized in the case of Cheryl, it really did boil down to these two things, caring personally and challenging directly. I knew that Cheryl cared about me, not just as an employee, but as a human being. And I, I knew that from a bunch of things she had done. I, when I first started working at Google, I had moved from New York where I had lived for a decade and came to California. I didn't really know anybody out here and I was lonely. And Cheryl could tell I was lonely and she introduced me to a book group that I'm still part of to this day. Mm. And when I had a family member fall ill, Cheryl said, your team is going to write your coverage plan for you. You go get on a plane and go home. Your, your place is with your family. We've got your back. That's what teams do for one another. And, you know, those are not the sorts of things that Cheryl could do for all 5,000 people in her organization. But if you, relationships don't scale, but if you worked closely with Cheryl, you knew that she cared about you. You knew that she had your back. And, and that does scale because when a leader treats their direct reports that way, their direct reports tend to treat their direct reports and it creates a culture and culture does scale. So that was the care personally part. But at the same time, I also knew that even though Cheryl didn't want to hurt my feelings in the short term, she wasn't going to avoid the hard conversations just because it might be hard. If it was good for my long-term development, she was going to tell me about the thing. And she was going to keep telling me until I heard. And so that's sort of radical candor in a nutshell. No, that's really good. Now, you touched on a very interesting point. because. You can't just implement challenging directly from day one. There needs to be some sort of relationship or sort of goodwill built up. What's the, how do you know that it is the right time to start challenging directly? I'm assuming you can't challenge from day one. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to challenge that. Okay, <laughs> I, th- I like that. I, th- I think you can. I think you can start challenging from day one. Okay. You obviously want to make sure that you're attending to the care personally side of things. And and if you don't know someone super well, it's hard to do that. But if you think about, if you think about a simple situation, so let's imagine you you have a new employee, mm-hmm. first day of this person working, or a new colleague or a, a new friend, whatever, and you're having lunch together for the very first time. And the person has spinach in their teeth. Mm. you know that the way you build trust with that person is to tell them. Because if you Mm. don't tell them they're going to go to the bathroom, they're going to see the spinach and wonder why you didn't have the courtesy to tell them. And so I think the way that you build psychological safety, the way that you build trust is through radical candor. I think Mm -hmm. it's tempting. And I mean, I wrote this book because I have succumbed to this temptation plenty of times in my life. It's tempting to think, ah, I don't know the person very well. Mm-hmm. And so I am not going to tell them. I'll wait till I get to know them better. And then I'll tell them. I'll, I'll tell you a story about a time when I did that also shortly after I started working at Google. So I had this guy, I, this guy joined my team and I liked him. I was excited to work with him, but he, he referred to, to women as girls. Okay. And this bugs me. This is like, you know, this, I find it disrespectful. And as I mentioned, my boss was Cheryl Sandberg and I I knew it would bother her too. Yeah. And I told myself, so he said it a couple once, he said it twice. He said it, I was like, oh, 
I'm sick of having this conversation. I'm not going to tell him. And then all of a sudden, he burst into my office. He had just had his first meeting with Cheryl. And he said, oh, my gosh, the whole meeting was consumed with her yelling at me because I called women girls. And I realized, like, I had, I had set him up for failure. I should have told him. And now he was in the situation where he was rattled, understandably, when your boss's boss yells at you for 30 minutes. And he's not, he's not, he was not a sexist guy. He just hadn't been taught this thing, not, not to say this. And instead of sort of taking accountability and saying, you're right, I should have told you, I turned to the other two guys who were sitting in my office with me, who had worked with me for a long time, who I had convinced to refer to women as women. And I looked at them and I said, you can just thank me now, you know? And we all started laughing at this poor guy who had just been reamed out. And it was really, it was, uh, it was, I mean, it was one of my, it it was a shameful management moment on my Mm -hmm. part because it was my job to tell him. Mm-hmm. that he shouldn't do this. And, and when he pointed it out to me, I just, I made a joke of it, which was not, not okay. Yeah, I can, I can, I can understand that. Now, so you touched on sort of radical candor and diversity and I guess other aspects of that. How, how does one navigate those sort of issues or challenges? Yes, it's a really good question. In fact, I just did a podcast a couple of weeks ago on being radically candid about race. Mm-hmm. It is, it's hard, as you said, it's much harder to be radically candid with people who you don't know well. And it's also much harder to be radically candid with people who, who are different from you in some way. And it's also more important, actually. In fact, this is the subject of my whole next book, which is called mm. Just Work, Get Shit Done Fast and Fair. And it's sort <laughs> of about how, how to be radically candid around these, around sort of bias, prejudice, bullying, harassment, discrimination, and, and physical violations. It's much harder. Th- these topics are much harder to be radically candid about than spinach in your teeth or saying um too much in a meeting. <laughs> but, but more important, I think. In fact, Here's a, a story, an illustration of why it is so important. There's a, a friend of mine worked at a big tech company, and he was in a meeting with someone who was describing her new marketing campaign. And she referred to her marketing campaign as rolling thunder. Mm-hmm. And he knew that if she had known the history of rolling thunder, which was a which was one of the most shameful campaigns in the Vietnam War, where the, the American military killed many, many, many civilians and, and didn't advance things strategically at all. She would never have used that, mm-hmm. that term to describe her. It sort of sounded cool, but she didn't know what it was. Mm-hmm. And he was afraid to tell her. And the reason why he was afraid to tell her was that he was afraid he would get accused of being an asshole or mansplaining or, or something like that. So he, did, he was not radically candid. He was manipulatively insincere. Mm. And, uh, and I, the thing that was so painful about this was that I knew her and I knew she would have welcomed the information, but I also had great empathy for why he didn't want to say anything to her. And so we have to learn how to be radically candid in this environment, which feels hard. It feels much harder. So I have, there's a kind of a, a short, short version of using the framework 
to think through what kinds of things tend to happen. You want to hear mm -hmm. it? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Okay, I'll lay it on you. <laughs> so I think very often men, when when they have women reporting to them or white people when they have black people reporting to them or people of color or straight people when they have gay people or or trans trans people or non non-binary people they're they're afraid they're they're afraid to offer radical candor so they so they wind up in ruinous empathy and sort of let's double down on the gender on the gender topic like I think very often when I talk to men, they're, they're, they're either afraid, oh my gosh, she'll start to cry. The woman will start to cry. And I have a couple of things to say about that. One is that, in my experience anyway, and this maybe says more about me than about men, but men cry just as often as women in my office. Men cry too, number one. Number two, none of us are water-soluble. Like We can't avoid emotion in the office. We're all human beings. If the idea of radical candor is care personally, you can't avoid emotion. You have to, you have to, emotion is sort of how we learn to relate to one another. So I would argue you, you need to remember that it is, it is important that you offer feedback equitably to all your, to all of your direct reports. Mm. So important. And there's a lot of research that shows that, that, lack of feedback is often what holds underrepresented people back in their career. Mm. In fact, one of my favorite books is Whistling Vivaldi and by Claude Steele. And he talks about how important it was as one of the very few black PhD students in his program that his academic advisor gave him really good feedback on mm. his work. That was what, what helped him succeed. And at the same time, he, he has research on how stereotype threat, when we're afraid that if we, if we say something to someone, we'll be accused of something. We're, we may be afraid that we'll be accused of, of being racist. We may be af afraid we're going to be accused of being sexist. That kind of stereotype threat actually makes us do the thing that we're afraid of being accused of doing. Yeah. So, so, so if I'm afraid to give something like some of my employees feedback, I was kind of afraid to give my employee the feedback about using the word girl because I didn't want to have this painful argument with him. I didn't want him to accuse me of being politically correct. And then I was a bad manager. Like I didn't give him the feedback. So if you're, if you're a man and you have women on your team, just make sure you're giving them feedback. If you're white and you have people of color on your team, make sure you're giving them feedback. Don't, don't fall into that trap. Don't be ruinously empathetic mm. because it's bad for them. It's bad for you. It's bad for the whole team. Now, there's another dynamic that plays out. You ready to hear more? Or do Absolutely. Do you have questions on that dynamic? <laughs> No, I'm good. G give me more. So, so the other dynamic I think that plays out really often is that women underrepresented and, and really all underrepresented people, when they offer radical candor, they get accused of being obnoxiously aggressive. I mean, this was mm. certainly true for me as, as a woman in my career. And my colleagues who are, who are Black have said it's much worse for them than it was for me. And I believe it. I'm sure it's true. 
In fact, I was talking, I was working with one CEO who's black and she said, you know, I have never in my career raised my voice because I can't afford to do it. I'm like, wow, that's exhausting. I mean, Mm -hmm. I'm not a yeller, but (laughs) I certainly wouldn't say I've never raised my voice. So I think very often if you're an underrepresented person and you offer radical candor, you get unjustly accused of obnoxious aggression. And Kieran Snyder has a lot of research about how she looked at a bunch of performance reviews. And basically they would say stuff like, we can't promote her because she's abrasive. And then a man who behaved the exact same way, the text would be, yeah, he's aggressive, but he has to be to get the job done. Let's promote mm-hmm. him. And so, so this kind of unjust accusation of obnoxious aggression, only, of course, you're not going to be called obnoxiously aggressive. You call, you'll be called abrasive. You'll be called bitchy. You'll be called things that are more painful than obnoxious. And that puts a lot of pressure on people, especially people early in their careers, to back off on challenge directly. Mm. The problem there is that then you wind up in either manipulative insincerity or ruinous empathy. And that's even less effective than obnoxious aggression. So what you want to do when you are unjustly accused of, you know, biasedly accused of obnoxious aggression is take a moment to show that you care, like move up on the care personally dimension, but, but don't back off on your, on your sort of willingness to challenge directly. And if you are, if you are sort of writing reviews of people, be aware there are certain biased words that, that when you use them, you should question yourself. If you're saying abrasive, bossy, bitchy, like any of those words, like stop and think, is the, am I being, is, is this bias talking? Mm-hmm. So, so say you have a certain type of relationship with your employees or your reports right now, and you don't challenge directly. Is there anything that someone is looking to change their sort of approach and challenge more directly? Do they need to do anything to prep themselves? Buy your book, put it on the table and point to it? Or is there anything they should do? Yeah, so, so for me at least, because I really, I struggled with this for a long time in my career. And I, I don't come by radical candor naturally. It, mm-hmm. it felt, it always, it still, even today, feels like a little bit of an unnatural act. Um, so here are the things that have helped me. One of the things that has helped me is to think of stories. That's why I wrote Radical Candor, almost like a book of short stories. So when I think about that um story that I just told, yeah. I realize how grateful I am to Cheryl for being willing to tell me this. And it was it wasn't actually that easy for her. It seemed easy to me, but when I was writing the book, I sent her a note. I was like, I'm telling the story. Is, you know, I want to make sure my memory is your memory. And she said, gosh, did I really say you sounded stupid? <laughs> <laughs> I can't believe I said that. I was like, you said that. I remember you said that. So it does not feel easy. It's hard, even for people who are really good at it. So it is helpful to have those positive stories in mind. And then the other thing that has really helped me is to think about times in my life and in my career when I have failed to give radical candor mm-hmm. and it had a really negative impact on, on someone, on me, on the other person, on the whole team. And when I remember the problems of not delivering radical candor, it helps me 
it helps me overcome my reluctance to offer the radical candor. You want my radical, my failure to deliver radical candor story? Yeah, absolutely. Sure. I think it'll help people. Yeah. So my story will help you, but what will help you more is thinking of your story that's analogous. So think of your own story. So here's my Bob story. So I I had hired this guy, and this is probably one of the most painful moments in my career. I had hired this guy, we'll call him Bob, and I liked Bob a lot. He was smart, he was charming, he was funny. He would do stuff like we were at a manager offsite, and it was a startup, and we were all really stressed out and really busy, and somehow we got to playing one of those endless get to know you games. Mm -hmm. And it was obvious nobody really wanted to be doing this at that (laughs) moment in time, but nobody dared raise their hand and say, Hey, we we got better things to do right now. (laughs) And we've all been in those situations. Right. And Bob was the guy who had the courage to say, Hey, listen, I really want to get to know you all, but I can tell you're stressed. And I think I have an idea that'll be really fast and, and then we can all go home. And whatever his idea was, we were down with it. And Bob says, let's just go around the table and confess to one another what candy our parents used when potty training us. Really weird, but really fast. And uh, weirder yet, we all remembered. And then for the next 10 months, every time there was a tense moment in a meeting, Bob would whip out just the right piece of candy for the right person at the right moment. So Bob brought a little levity to the office. We all loved Bob. All loved Bob. One problem with Bob. Oh, no. He was doing terrible work. (laughs) Absolutely terrible. And he would hand stuff in to me, and there was shame in his eyes. He knew he was doing. And I was so puzzled. I couldn't understand what was going on because he had this incredible resume, all these, this history of accomplishments. And... I learned actually much later that the problem was that he was smoking pot in the bathroom three times a day, which maybe explained all that candy (laughs) he had at all times. But anyway, I didn't know any of that at the time. All I knew Mm -hmm. is he was doing terrible work. And so I, I said, I would say to him something along the lines of, oh, Bob, this is such a great start. Thank you so much. You're so smart. You're so awesome. Everybody loves working with you maybe you can make it just a little better. And of course, he never did. And this goes on for 10 months and his colleagues are getting more and more frustrated because they're having to redo their work, Mm. his work, their deliverables are late because his deliverables are late. And eventually the inevitable happened. And I realized that if I didn't fire Bob, I was going to lose all my best employees. They were so frustrated. And so I sat down to have a conversation with Bob that I should have begun frankly, 10 months previously. And when I finished explaining to him how things stood, he kind of pushed his chair back from the table and he looked me right in the eye and he said, why didn't you tell me? Mm. And as that question was going around in my head with no good answer, he said, why didn't anyone tell me? Mm -hmm. I thought you all cared about me. Ooh, that hurt. Yeah. And now I realized, now I realized that, that I had failed Bob in a bunch of different ways. I had failed to solicit feedback from Bob. Maybe, maybe I was doing something that was bothering him so much he was forced to toke up in the bathroom three times a day. <laughs> I don't know. I don't yeah, know because yeah. I never solicited feedback. I never, I never asked him what was going well from his perspective, but more importantly, 
I never asked him what mm-hmm. wasn't going well from his perspective. And then I failed to give him both praise and criticism. The kind of praise I gave him was really just a head fake or an ego salve. It wasn't meaningful. And I failed to tell him when his work wasn't nearly good enough. And then perhaps worst of all, I failed to create the kind of environment in which everyone would tell Bob what was truly great about working with him and when he was going off the rails. And because I had failed in all these different ways, and I was just trying to be nice, you know, not so nice after all, and now I'm firing him. And the real problem was that it was too late at this point to save Bob. Even mm. Bob agreed he should go. His reputation had been shot on the team. All I could do in that moment of, in time was make myself a very solemn promise that I would never make that mistake again and, and that I would do everything in my power to help the people who I worked with and, and the world at large avoid making that mistake because it was so it was painful for me, much worse for Bob, obviously, and it was terrible for the whole team. And yet this is probably the most common management mistake that I have seen throughout my career. Yeah, yeah, that's a very compelling story. <laughs> I, I really like it. And I love the challenge of you saying, what is your story or what, are the, what is the listener's story? And yeah. how can you hold that really close to yourself and share that with others and, and make sure that people know where you're coming from? So that's really cool. Yeah. Yeah, so if you can if you can if you can explain this radical candor framework to your team using your stories not my stories, then you give them context for why you're going to why you're going to sort of try to change your behavior. But there there's another important thing I think to keep in mind if you mm-hmm. want to put radical candor into practice. And that is that there's a real order of operations here. Mm-hmm. I think one mistake that people make about radical candor is they think it's all about the boss criticizing the employees. Okay. And, and that's not the right order of operations. Mm-hmm. The, the right first step, no matter what your relationship is with someone, but especially if you're the boss, is to solicit feedback, mm, yeah. to make sure you understand what's going on for the other person. And you know maybe there's something you're doing wrong, but maybe there's just something going on in their life that you need to know about. So you want to start by soliciting feedback from the other person. And then you want to think about giving praise next. Mm-hmm. I, I, I talk about radical candor as a way to think about feedback, but I prefer the word guidance. And guidance sort of helps people go in the right direction. And there's praise and there's criticism. There's not that way, yes, that way, you know. And so if you think about your job as a leader, your job is really to sort of paint a picture of what's possible, the art of possibility. And is a great, is another great sort of leadership book. And I think that praise is a much more important tool for painting a picture of what's possible than, than criticism. So you want to sort of focus on the good stuff. And then you want to also offer criticism. I'm not saying don't criticize. You just want to focus on the good. And I'm not saying boil it down to some kind of ratio. I made a joke earlier about the feedback sandwich. The sandwich, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I think one of the mistakes that a lot of management training makes is that they try to, I mean, human relationships are complicated. Yeah. And they they try to sort of dumb it down to a simple (laughs) ratio. And, And it's just not possible. 
But it fits so nicely in a book, right? I know, it does. <laughs> it does. It's, I mean, it's frankly, the Dane, I shouldn't throw stones, uh, especially since I'm sitting in a glass box right now, but also, <laughs> yeah. but also because... Uh, because radical candor is dangerous too. Like it's, it, I'm trying to oversimplify something that's actually very complicated. But I think that the key thing is you want to be specific and sincere with your praise and you want to be kind and clear with your criticism and you yeah. want to give more praise than criticism, but you're still not done. So now you've found out what you're doing that's wrong. Now you've focused on what the other person is doing that's right. And you've also told them about something that they're doing that's that's maybe not right. Now you've got to gauge how what you said landed. Because radical candor gets measured not at my mouth, but at your ear. And it's hard to know it's hard for me to know what's going on at your ear. And so you've got to sort of notice. And this is why I I think it's so important not to reject all emotion from these conversations because you got to notice what's going on for the other person after you've spoken. Yeah. Uh, listening is actually much radical candor is not a monologue. You've, you've got to listen to how the other person responds. And if the person is angry or if the person is sad, which is sort of usually what we fear when we offer especially criticism, then that's your cue to move up on the care personally dimension of radical candor and to see the human need behind the anger or the sorrow. Mm. But it's tempting if someone is if someone is mad. I mean, at, at least for me, my usual instinct is to run away and pull into my shell like a turtle, or sometimes to punch back. Right. Mm. So then you wind up in obnoxious aggression or manipulative insincerity yourself. So you want to make sure that you don't go down on the care personally dimension when someone is sad or angry. That you move up on care personally. But what happens actually in a lot of feedback conversations, probably in the majority of feedback conversations, is that the person you're giving the feedback to, especially if it's critical feedback, will do to you some version of what I did to Cheryl. They'll kind of brush you off. They're like, oh, it's no big deal. It doesn't really matter. They won't hear you. And that's your cue to move out further than you may be comfortable moving on the challenge directly dimension. Yeah. Does that make sense? It makes sense. It makes perfect sense. And you know what? This is fascinating. I love this topic, but we could talk about it forever, but I'm respectful for your time. Is there anything I, I should have asked you, but haven't? I think it, here's, my, here's my parting advice for listeners. If you do one thing as a result of having listened to this podcast, it is think about who you need to solicit feedback from and how you're going to ask them. What mm. question are you going to use? Because if you say, do you have any feedback for me? You're wasting your breath. I can already tell you the answer. Oh, no, everything's fine. Uh, so so you, you want to think about how you're going to ask. And you want to, so, so here's a way to, here are the sort of, here's a checklist manifesto for soliciting for soliciting feedback. First of all, it needs to sound like you. I'm gonna I'm gonna recommend a couple of questions that I like, but don't ask my question. You need to come up with yeah, your yeah. Question. But it, what would you say? So uh, I'll do that at the end. So the second thing you need to think about is you need to make sure that it's an open question that it can't be answered with a yes or no. Don't ask a yes or no question because if you do, 
I can already tell you the answer. No, I don't have any feedback, <laughs> you know, what, no matter how you ask it. So make sure it's an open-ended question. So it's got to feel like you. It's got to it's got to sort of demand a real answer. And third, you've got to target it for the other person. So I will give you a few examples of questions and when they work and when they didn't work. So the question that I that I like to ask is what could I do or stop doing that would make it easier to work with me? Mm. And that was a question that my coach, my beloved coach at Google, Fred Kaufman, recommended. And and I've used it for a long time in my career. And usually it works, but it doesn't always, it's not always a good question because some people who I've worked with hate that question. <laughs> so do they hate example, it from the beginning or do they start hating it after you hear it they, a bunch of times? They hate it from the first time I asked. <laughs> so, so for example, I started this company with Jason Rosoff. So it's a company that, that helps teams roll out radical candor, that helps make it a reality. So we do talks and workshops and coaching. And, and Jason told me shortly after we started the company that he hated my feedback question. <laughs> and, he's, and, and so here's how it feels to him, which it makes perfect sense. He said, when it's so open-ended, I feel it, it doesn't feel sincere to me. And mm. I also, I feel stressed because it's so big. So with Jason, I try to ask him a question right after if we're on a call together or if we work on a project together, I'll ask him right after, how, wh what could I have done on that call that would have been more effective? Or if I think I made a mistake, I'll say, I feel like I maybe pissed off this person how could I have said it better so I didn't piss off that person or what I just I try to be more specific when I when I talk to Jason. Now there's another woman who I worked with, Krista Quarles, who when she was the CEO of OpenTable. And she also hated my question. She said, I could I could never imagine those words coming out of my mouth. And I said, Well, what question do you like to ask? Because I knew that she was really good at soliciting feedback. And she said, the question I like to ask is tell me why I'm smoking crack. Okay, that's fine. But she said it doesn't always, that question doesn't always work. One time she had an employee who, who was struggling with drug addiction and oh. that obviously was a terrible question to ask him. So you need to be sensitive to who you are and also to who the other people who you're working with are. Yeah, no, that's perfect. Thank you. Thank you so much. Great advice. And I, I think you're You've made a solid contribution to making the, uh, the workplace a, a nicer and more productive place with feedback. So thank you for that. Well, thank you. That is, that's why I wrote the book. You just made four long, lonely years worthwhile. <laughs> thank you. Thank you. I want to thank everyone for listening to Specify today. also want to thank the listeners who are working hard each day to change the world to make it a better place. If you know anyone, anyone that would benefit from this episode, please pass it along. And finally, make sure you subscribe to hear upcoming episodes. Talk to you soon.
This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.